Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Today's podcast is from a sermon I delivered on the book of Acts. I hope you enjoy. Bible is open. I'm going to page 771 or the, God, or the book of Acts chapter 2. Page 771 of the book of Acts chapter 2 as we continue our study of the book of Acts. The book of Acts begins with the apostles um, seeing the resurrected Jesus. Jesus appears to them over, over a period of 40 days and tells them, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to send you off to the nations from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, but don't go anywhere yet because you're not in any condition to do anything. Wait till the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit is the person of God that dwells within the believer, that dwells within the hearts and the lives of Christians. Jesus, as I said a few weeks ago, it would have been easier if Jesus would have kind of stayed, in my opinion, if He would have just stayed around. It would have been easier, hey, you go preach the gospel, Jesus, and we'll just kind of follow you. You do all the work and we'll support you. We'll do everything. You know, when you make all the bread, we'll pick up all the extra crumbs. And, you know, it'll be great. You walk on water. We'll be like in the boat paddling alongside you. You preach to the multitudes. And then we'll like hold, you know, conferences afterwards to help disciple them. You do the work, Jesus. And his answer is, no, I'm leaving. But I'm going to send you my spirit. And the, the benefit of the spirit is going to be that the spirit's going to be with us always. That no matter where we go, whether it's Russia, whether it's Indonesia, whether it's South America, no matter where, the Spirit of God's going to go with us. If you think about it, Jesus can only be at one place at one time. And now, through the Spirit, the presence of Christ can be throughout the entire earth. But then we have to deal with the fact that it's up to us now to do the ministry and the work of the church. So the Holy Spirit comes in chapter 2 of the book of Acts. And it falls upon the disciples and they're empowered and they begin to speak out loud. And as they're speaking out loud... Everyone in Jerusalem who's all in town for the Feast of Pentecost begins hearing the disciples speaking in their own language. And they're like, wait a minute, what's going on? How is it that I'm hearing him in Egyptian or Syriac and you're hearing him in Greek and you're hearing him in Latin? And, and what, what's going on? So Peter gets up in Acts chapter 2 and he begins to give this sermon or a speech. And Peter goes on to say this. Acts chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse um, 22. Men of Israel, listen to, the word, to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God, with miracles, wonders, and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, and you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again putting an end to agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh and my le- will live, also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known uh, to me the ways of life, You'll make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter continues in verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you, regarding the patriarch David, that he was both buried, uh, died and it was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because uh, because he was a prophet, and he knew that God has sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. 
this Jesus, the God raised up again, to which we were all witnesses. Verse 33, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth that which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Verse 36, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. In each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Spirit. Um, I apologize, I deleted the first slide, but the first slide, is, uh, fill in the, if you're filling in the blanks on the outline, the first fill in the blank is the resurrection, the word resurrection. The resurrection was a central part of the Christian message. So the first fill in the blank is the resurrection was the central part of the Christian message. Peter gets up and explains what's going on. Here's what happened, guys. Jesus did all these miracles. You know he did all these miracles. And even though he did all these things, you killed him. Which, by the way, if you're ever trying to, to you know, that, that, that old book, how to, how, to make, how to Win Friends and Influence People, this is not how you do it. This is not the best way to be an evangelist. To accuse the people you're trying to witness to of murdering God's own son. You did it! But guess what? God raised him from the dead. And Peter goes on to quote David and say, look, even David, the, the, our great forefather, he, he acknowledged that, that God would not let his Holy One see decay. Now here's the reality. David was not talking about himself. You will, not let, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Could not be a reference to David because his tomb's right over there. But Jesus' tomb is empty. Acts 2 goes on to explain that about 3,000 people began to follow Jesus that day. Let's look at a few other sermons in the book of Acts. We're going to skip to chapter 17 now. And I gave you a list at the top of the outline of the sermons in the book of Acts. We're going to skip to Acts chapter 17. The beginning of that chapter where Paul speaks to the Jews uh, in Thessalonica, or refer, Luke refers to Paul speaking to the, to the Jews in Thessalonica, Acts 17, verse 1. It says, When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, uh, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus, I am proclaiming to you, is the Messiah, he said. Paul's speech amidst the Jewish people was the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was to suffer and rise from the dead. Acts chapter 17, verse 18, Paul's sermon to the, to the Greeks in Athens. Verse 18 says, A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with Paul. And some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and his resurrection. As we go through the sermons in the book of Acts and the speeches, we see constantly it's the resurrection of Jesus. Acts 26. Acts chapter 26. Paul speaks before King Agrippa. And he says this, verse 6. Paul says, And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. 
why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Over and over again, no matter where they went, the disciples were proclaiming Jesus Christ was crucified, buried, and risen again. In the book of 1 Corinthians, not one of the sermons in the book of Acts, I'll turn there on the, on the slide here, Paul references essentially the, the core of the gospel. And here's what he says, verse 5, chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance. Here it is, first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The gospel goes out throughout the entire book of Acts and the early church on the basis that Jesus Christ was crucified, buried, and risen again. Simple. Christianity grew in a sense then because it was true. Though you have to admit, this is a hard, a hard pill to swallow. For the Romans and for the Jews around the Roman world, it's like, why should we believe that somebody... Did, how do we know he rose from the dead? How, how do we know you're not just making this... It, it's a difficult... For the people in Jerusalem, it's easy. The tomb's empty and they might know it. But as they proclaimed this throughout the Roman world, they didn't shrink away from the gospel. And the gospel was Jesus Christ, dead, buried, and resurrected. The second thing I want to point out is that the message to the Jews centered on Scripture and Jesus as the fulfillment of the Scriptures. The message to the Jews centered on, G on Scripture and Jesus as the fulfillment of the Scriptures. And I apologize because a couple of my slides earlier were probably from the New American Standard. And if you're reading along in your Bibles, it didn't, it didn't quite mess, match up. Sometimes I forget to change my program over to NIV. And my slides are in the New American Standard, which is what I normally study in. But if you notice on the slides, if you're looking up at them, whenever it has all bold letters, all block, uh, bold, that's the New American Standard's way of saying we're quoting the Old Testament right now. So in that sense, it was a good thing. You can see the abundant references to the Old Testament in Peter's sermon uh, in Acts chapter 2. Now let's go to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And this is Paul speak, speaking to the Jews in Pisidian Antioch. So Acts chapter 13. The point of it is, when Paul spoke to the Jews, he spoke to them about the Scriptures and Jesus as the fulfillment of those Scriptures. Acts chapter 13. I'm going to start in verse 14. From Perga, they went down to Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the Law and the Prophets, which is the Old Testament, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation to the people, please speak. So standing up, Paul motioned with his hands and said, Fellow Israelites, and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. Verse 17. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors, and he made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Cana, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel, the prophet. Verse 21. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, the son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning David, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to us Israel, the Savior Jesus. And as he promised, before the coming of Jesus, John, John the Baptist, John the Baptist preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose that I am? 
I am not the one you're looking for, but there's one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children, verse 26. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning Him, they actually fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And after many days, he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors. He has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son. Today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, You will not let your holy one see decay. Verse 36. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through Him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. You see the parallel between Paul's speech here with, to the Jewish audience and, and Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Uh, again, quoting David and quoting the Psalms. God's not going to let us see decay. The Scriptures are fulfilled in Jesus. In fact, by the way, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament story, one of the ways to get familiar with the Old Testament story is just to read the book of Acts. Especially chapter 7, which I won't go into this morning. In Acts chapter 7, it's Stephen's speech before the Jews. And he goes through the history of the Old Testament and says, Jesus is the fulfillment of it. The sermons in the book of Acts then focus first on the resurrection of Jesus, and secondly, to the Jewish people, they, they focus on the fulfillment of the Scriptures in Jesus. Now, a third point I want to make this morning is this. They often told their stories in their speeches. Or they often told stories in their speeches. Sometimes the story itself would be the story of the Old Testament finding its fulfillment in Jesus, as we see in Acts chapter 7 that I just alluded to. This is Stephen. He says, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people. Go, God said, and go to the land that I will show you. And if you keep reading, he's telling you the Old Testament story and how that story finds its climax in Jesus. Paul, in Acts 26, tells his own story. And I'll read just a part of it. Paul, in Acts 26, says this. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way that I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time, and they can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strict, strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And if you keep reading, Paul's going to go on and tell a story. One of the things that they do in these speeches is they tell their own stories. So the question becomes, well, how does this apply to us? We're going to continue the next couple of weeks looking at these sermons. There's a lot to, un to unpack, so let's, let's take it home for us this morning. For one thing, the, the first thing I would say is this. From the unity of the church that we talked about the last couple of weeks 
comes the church's mission. And we cannot separate those two. The church was successful and faithful in its mission because they remain unified. And as long as we remain unified, we can fulfill the mission that God has sent for us. And so the first point I'd like to make this morning is this. What matters is that the kingdom of God flourishes. It's that the kingdom of God, that the gospel goes forth. Now, as you read the book of Acts, one of the things to note is they don't always always agree with each other. Luke is not afraid, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, is not afraid to tell us about their squabbles, about their conflicts. In chapter 6, these widows are being overlooked and and preference is given to these widows. In 15, there's a dispute. Well, what do we do with these people? In 16, Paul and Barnabas... Now here's what you may not realize. Barnabas' name, Barnabas, means the son of encouragement. If there was anybody that was easy to get along with, it has to be Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas have a debate. So strongly that they agree to to separate and go different ways. And Paul goes this way and Barnabas goes this way. There's conflict. Yet even in the midst of their conflict and their differences, they remain unified to say, hey look, this is the focus. We're not going to agree on this one. So I'm going to go here and you're going to go there. But let's go focus together on at least making sure that the kingdom of God is what flourishes. Okay? Let's make sure that the kingdom of God is what flourishes. C.S. Lewis says this. And I don't have a slide, so I hope, I hope you can listen well. C.S. Lewis says, The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ. To make them little Christ." If they are not doing that, then all the cathedrals, the clergy, the missions, the sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. The resurrection of Jesus was that central message of the gospel. It was the proof in, in, in Paul's mind, and Peter's mind, that the kingdom of God has come. In the resurrection, that the new creation has come. And it's that gospel message that we're called to proclaim, to to, to share and to spread throughout the nations. Which means that we have to care about the lost. That's our job. That's our task. That's our ministry. That's our mission. If we get serious about reaching people who do not know Christ, then God will bring us those people. The stories in the book of Acts reminds us, by the way, that men and women proclaim the gospel of Christ. And because they proclaim the gospel of Christ, there is a Christianity Christianity today. We're here because someone has shared with us the gospel to some extent. And because they were faithful to the gospel, I have come to know Jesus. But they wouldn't have been faithful to the gospel if someone didn't share the gospel with them. And they wouldn't have been faithful, and on, and on, and on, and on. We have a heritage of 2,000 years that we have been given the light of, the, the, the candle, the flame. And we are called to carry forth that flame and to make the gospel known. One of the problems that we face, however, is that the church in America is dying. It's dying. The church in Europe is already pretty much dead. If you haven't been to Europe before, you might, or if you have been there, You may have been to some of the cathedrals that are now museums. I stood outside a museum, a cathedral in in Germany. It wasn't open. I couldn't go in. It was a Sunday morning. The museum was closed that day. Here's a graphic, and I know you might not be able to see it too well. Religious identification in the United States from 2008 to 2015. 
The first column shows you the percentage of people that claim to be Christian. And you can know from 2008 to 2015, the number is continuously in decline. From 80% down to 75.2% in 2015. The second column is those who claim a non-Christian religion. And you can see that that number is a relatively static, going down, coming back up, starting at 5.3%, finishing at 5.1%. But it's the far column that's most significant. And that's the people who claim no religious affiliation at all. Notice that in 2008, it was 14.6, but in 2015, it's 19.6. This category called the nuns, those who have no religious affiliation at all, is growing and growing and growing in the United States of America. This next one is also relevant to us as well, and that is, it's showing you the change of religion in the religious landscape in, in the United States. And what I want you to notice is this, is this line right here, 18.1% of people in America uh, uh, claimed to be even, or a mainline Protestant, and now in uh, five years later, I believe it's five years later, 2007, 2014. So seven years later, it's now 14.7%. Denominations are in decline, and mainline denominations are in decline even more rapidly. So what do we do? Dana shared this, our, the, the executive director at ECO, uh, during one of his presentations. In 1960, Presbyterians made up 3% of the United States population. Today, they are less than 0.5%. The number of witches in America now outnumber the number of Presbyterians. The, yeah, I, I, that was correct. The number of witches in North America now outnumber the number of Presbyterians. In 1998, a Barna poll showed that 85% of Americans had a favorable view of evangelicals. In 2017, only 32% had a favorable view of evangelicals. Today, the word evangelical is actually synonymous with hypocrite in most contexts. What are we doing about it? What are we going to do about it? We have to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in love and gentleness and respect that is how the message goes forth. At our national gathering in ECO this uh, uh, last week, um, they handed out these cards, and Dana, um, the executive director, shared it with us. This is ECO's 10-year vision, a summary statement, and I'll, I'll get it on a slide here when I, uh, as soon as I can, but let me read it for you now. It says, as ECO began, our desire was not simply to create another denomination, but to truly be a movement that recaptures the best of our Presbyterian and Reformed heritage to saturate our broken and hurtling world with the transforming power of Jesus Christ. We are now committing, or committed to reaching a new apex in our next decade of ministry by envisioning 1,000 new planted, revitalized, and flourishing, flourishing eco-congregations and micro-expressions by 2030. To make this passion a reality, we are aggressively recruiting, training, and retraining and deploying 1,000 vocational leaders and 10,000 highly invested lay leaders. In doing so, we see hundreds of thousands of movement-equipped people emerging for daily gospel influence. Like a child who blows a dandelion into the wind, the Spirit scatters us into our communities to plant the gospel. Imagine the worldwide millions of people linked to the surprising goodness of God, Loved through tangible acts of kindness, lifted by the compelling good news of Jesus Christ, and lavishly adopted into a new and better kind of family. That is a vision of our, of our denomination for the next 10 years. I think we should say, amen. amen. So how do we do this? It starts with us. 
each one of us individually. And let me give us a couple thoughts. Number one, prepare your story. Stories have a tremendous ability to transform lives. Joshua told a little bit of his story and the transformation in his life. Stories capture people. They captivate. The stories tell us about the times that God's provided for us. He's answered our prayers. He's revealed His will. He's made Himself known to us. He took us from the depths and brought us to where we are. Share your stories. Because people will resonate with stories. People are done in America with the old, I need to be, you need to be saved so you don't go to hell. They're like, I don't need that stuff. They don't want to hear that. The nuns are growing. But they do want to hear your story. And they'll listen. And they'll be captivated by your story. As we go to the book of Acts, Paul tells a story. Stephen tells a story. The story is an important element. And we'll speak next week even more and more and more about how understanding the culture is such that the younger generations, they want to hear your stories. And, 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 they'll, and, and they'll follow you as they listen to your stories. Secondly, ask God for, for opportunities to share your story with others. It's, it's easy to stop and say, well, I want to share my story with this person and this person and this person. But sometimes we need to be available for the opportunity for conversation, the opportunity to share our story whenever God may so deem it necessary. You, many of you know I have a brother who lives across the country. He doesn't listen to my sermons, so I can talk about him. <laughs> who doesn't know Christ. And my whole life I've been praying for him. More than 40-something years of my prayers for my brother John. And he lives 3,000 miles away, so one of my prayers is, Lord, send someone to him today. Send someone to his golf course. Send someone wherever he may be who can share the gospel with him. And a number of years ago, I realized, hey, maybe somebody on the other side of the country is praying that, somebody would, that God would send somebody to their relative, and maybe that's me. Just as I'm praying for God to send someone to my brother, maybe God's praying for me to be sent to their relative or to their loved one. And maybe God's calling you. And so when you sit next to them at a, the DMV or on a bus or on an airplane, Lord, give me an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Whatever it may be, ask God for opportunities to share your stories with others. Others, But thirdly, don't expect people to believe in immediately. The United States is becoming a post-Christian culture. The number of people that grow up that do not know who David is. They've never heard of Paul, and so when Acts starts calling him Saul, then changes to Paul, they're like, what's going on? They don't know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They don't know Genesis. They don't know the stories. They're not going to simply fall on their knees and repent the first time that you tell them that they need a Savior. Their answer is, I don't think I need a Savior. I just need a little bit of help right now because I'm having some problems with my kids. That's what I need. So come alongside them and encourage them and support them in raising their kids or handling things at work. One of the best things that we can do is to build relationships with them and earn their trust they probably won't even be willing to hear about Jesus for a while. So just earn their trust. 
So that later on, when you do start to share with them about the Jesus part, they're like, okay, you know, I've been watching you for three months, six months, nine months, and I kind of respect you a little bit. You, you seem to be different. What's different about you? Oh, let me tell you about Jesus. And the doors open. The if gathering is a wonderful opportunity for you ladies to bring other ladies. Because let's be honest, most people that we know probably won't come on a Sunday morning. That's probably not going to be their first step. Their first step is not going to become, I'm not going to, you know, I'm done with, I don't, I don't like church, I don't respect church. What? Okay, hey, come to a Bible study with me. Come to a fellowship with me. Come to an event with me. And the if gathering is a wonderful opportunity next Friday night to bring women to come hear the gospel. Just sit down with them in Starbucks, wherever it might be, and just listen. And then as the opportunity comes, share your story. And see if Jesus doesn't work in their hearts and in their lives. Let me give you a fourth point. The fourth point is that the greatest evidence of Christianity is the transformed lives of Christians. The greatest evidence is the transformed lives of Christians. C.S. Lewis, this is his argument. If you're not uh, familiar with C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and those books, which is a generation ago or more now, argue that the greatest evidence for Christianity is to transform lives of Christians. Now, I, I believe there's a great argument to be made for the existence of God based on the resurrection of Jesus. And, and the, the, the testimony and the evidence of the empty tomb. The existence of God based on the complexity of creation and how there must be a God who designed and ordered all that. The, I, I think there's plenty of good reasons to believe in the presence and existence of God, but the greatest evidence really is you and me and the transformation in our lives which means now that we have to live up to that. And, and let me be clear. I, I don't mean that we have to live up to that in the sense that I have to be perfect. We just have to live up to that in the sense of, look at what Jesus has done. I'm not perfect. That's the whole point here. But look where I've come from. And let your life be a testimony. Our lives must reflect what we preach. And if they do, people will be attracted to our testimony. Let's pray. Father, we see that our culture is becoming more and more secular. And for many reasons, it causes us grief. But in many ways, it might be actually a great opportunity. A great opportunity to proclaim the gospel. We kind of have to change things around a little bit. We can't just tell them about Jesus if they don't even know who David and Moses and Paul and Peter are, let alone Jesus. So help us to reckon with that as well. Help us to earn trust and confidence by caring about people. By caring about them and their lives, about their families, about their marriages, about their child rearing about their health, and in doing so, that we might earn their trust to share with them about Jesus and the transformation as well. Because we believe that the new creation has come and that it's something to be experienced. The joy, the confidence, the comfort, the hope, and the peace that, that we receive, even in the midst of our trials and tribulations, even in the midst of our own doubts and our own uncertainty, we are still reminded of your presence in our lives, and we want that for them also whether it's my brother across the country or whether it's our spouses 
or our children or our parents or our siblings or our loved ones or our neighbors. Help us, Lord, to learn from the book of Acts that that we are the ones who have been called to go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That the ends of the earth begins in my own home, sometimes at my doorstep, sometimes at our workplaces, sometimes at Starbucks. Help us to be reminded that we have been called and chosen to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. So we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in our hearts and in our lives, that you would transform us, that you give us confidence, give us wisdom and discernment. Lord, many of us are afraid to proclaim the gospel because we don't know what to say. But you remind us that you'll give us your spirit and help us with what we need to say. All we need to do is to love them and support them and encourage them and be bold. And so we pray, Lord, indeed, that you would first strengthen us and that you would then help us to reach out to those to whom you have given to us. We thank you for these things. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.